These are the last words of the Apostle Paul. Not just the last words of Paul to Timothy. These are likely the last words that he wrote. Facing death, he had some closing thoughts for Timothy, really some reports of what his life had been like. So we'll read this this morning, 2 Timothy 4. We'll start at verse 6 and read to the end of the book. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for my ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with you. So we have here Paul's last words. People have had many different kinds of last words throughout their life. Some are profound and meaningful. Some are accidental. Some are humorous. Leonardo da Vinci, the great scientist and sculptor who accomplished so much, his last words as he was about to die, where I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. This is the guy who painted the Sistine Chapel and the Mona Lisa. But he says his work was not as good as it should have been. In the 50s, there was a singer by the name of Johnny Ace. And on a break between sets and a concert, he had a pistol. His last words were, I'll show you that it won't shoot. Did not have any words after that, and it turns out that he was not correct in his last words. Murderer James W. Rogers was one of the last men to face a firing squad in the state of Utah. And as he was standing in front of the firing squad, they asked him, do you have any final requests? His request, of course, was bring me a bulletproof vest, a request that they were not willing to oblige. Last words are often, though, profound. And here, Paul, as he gives his last words, has some important things to say. Clearly, he's expecting Timothy to come to him. He doesn't totally know that they are his last words. But you certainly get the sense as you read, particularly the first little section, that he knows that they are close to his last words. He knows that his life is coming to an end. And what does he have to say to Timothy at these last days? What's he experiencing as he says these last days? From an earthly perspective, these are dark times in Paul's life. He's alone. He's facing opposition. He is imprisoned. He's certainly not living his best life now at this point. He's struggling. He's suffering. Really, 
it's hard to really get into the mind of Paul all that time before now because what does he know about the impact that his life's work would have? He knows that he has served the gospel. He knows that he has given himself fully to the work of the gospel. Does he fully understand the significance of his work? I think he knew that the words that he wrote were inspired. But has there been a more influential person besides Christ than the Apostle Paul? Yet at the end of his life, he dies pretty much alone, abandoned by many, those who he thought were his friends, those who opposed him from the beginning. He's alone. He is in prison. And so he dies really by himself. What's he experiencing here? Well, I think there's three characteristics of Paul that we can see in this text, three characteristics that tell us what kind of person he was even at the end, what he thought was important. The first one we'll see in verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So he reviews his life. How does he describe the life that he's lived? He is being poured out as a drink offering. His departure is coming. He has fought the good fight. He has finished the race. He has kept the faith. So the life that Paul has led up to this point, what was it like? In another text, he gives a brief autobiography of what being Paul was really like. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Talking like a madman. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Forty lashes considered a death penalty because it was such a brutal punishment. So forty lashes save one. Beaten almost to death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship. And many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Paul describing his life describes a lot of hard times. Some of these we don't even have recorded authoritatively in Scripture beyond what he says here. We don't know all the times he was shipwrecked. We don't really know about the time that he was adrift at sea for a night and a day. But read the description of Paul's life and think that following Jesus is easy. Go ahead. Go ahead and read about him being beaten with... He has to distinguish how he was beaten. If you're the kind of person that has to distinguish the various beatings you have received into three categories, you've led a hard life. Paul doesn't just say, I was beaten. No, I was whipped, I was beaten, and I was stoned, he says. What a challenging life he leads. He talks about multiple shipwrecks. He gets to the end of the section, talks about the danger, danger from rivers, danger from robbers. Danger from my people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship. Paul faces danger everywhere he goes. He is persecuted, he suffers, 
everywhere he goes. And then he concludes, apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul loves the people and the bodies which he has established. He has anxiety for the churches. And so he leads this hard life. And he comes to the end of his life, as described in this section, says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He uses a series of metaphors to describe what life is like for him. This idea of a drink offering, it comes from the Old Testament. When a sacrifice was made, it would be accompanied by a drink that would then get poured out. The idea that it's wasted isn't quite the right word, but it's poured out saying, no one's drinking this. You can't take it up out of the dust and drink it again. Some of the sacrifices, they'd sacrifice and the priest could take that, and that was how the priests ate. And that was totally within the law. That was just the way God designed it. But this drink offering, the idea is you come up and all you do is just dump it out. It's like taking dollar bills and burning them up, right? They cease to be useful for their purpose. And so this drink offering is just completely expelled. And Paul, when he describes himself, I'm poured out. I'm done. I can't hold it together anymore. I've completed the course and I am out of juice, poured out. He says the time of his departure has come. The idea here is that of a boat leaving a port. A few months ago, I saw a video of someone who was on a cruise, and they're on the cruise ship, and the ship is pulling away from the dock, and this person is taking a video of someone running down the dock, arms waving, because they missed The boat stayed for 30 minutes, but eventually they have to leave. And so this mother, whose children were on the boat, is running down the dock, waving her arms, eventually She's going to need to pay a bunch of money to fly to the next island they're stopping at. But the time of departure was at hand. The boat's leaving, and you're not going to catch up by swimming. So Paul here uses kind of that metaphor saying, I've done what I'm supposed to do, and it's time to go. I've completed the work that Christ had given me. Uses the metaphor of fighting the good fight. I have fought the good fight. I think it's important to understand here when Paul refers to the good fight, he's not saying I fought well the fight. He's saying I fought a fight that was worth fighting. The fight itself is what is good. The work of the gospel was a fight. And as Paul participated in that work, he fought that good fight. He followed the path that God had given him. He fought the good fight. He's finished the race. Other places he talks about running to win. Here he's talking about running to finish. He ran the assigned course of the race. If there's a marathon that you're setting out to run, you can't just skip a few blocks. I have this new thing that I enjoy doing, watching videos of people. This sounds really boring, I know. I like watching, it's good to fall asleep to people hiking. <laughs> hiking these long North to South, Appalachian Trail, Continental Divide Trail, Pacific Crest Trail. And they hike and they talk about the hike and they talk about what they see. I don't know why I find it fascinating. But I just think it's so interesting to watch these things. This person is hiking and making a video of it. And it sounds even more ridiculous when I'm saying it out loud now. But watching it, and the one person I was watching was doing the Pacific Crest Trail. And it was so frustrating to the little group that there were sections that were closed. 
because of fire. And they couldn't walk through those sections, so they had to bypass. And it was like six miles shorter the way they went. And they're like, I feel like I'm not even finishing the trail. Because the trail's supposed to have this and this and this, and you go through it, and you shouldn't be skipping anything. In the same way, as Paul is talking about, he's like, the path that was laid out for me, I've run the path. I haven't taken shortcuts. I haven't skipped to the end. I haven't quit. God has assigned me a way of life, and I will walk down that path to the completion. And I'm there. I'm at the last mile of the race. It says he's kept the faith. He's told Timothy, guard the deposit. Keep the deposit. Keep the gospel. Paul says, I've kept it. I have not apostatized. I have not turned away. I have not quit. I have not become so discouraged that I let go. And so this whole letter, as he writes to Timothy, this is like a crown at the end of the letter. He says, Timothy, hold on to the gospel. Be steadfast. Be consistent. Warn people. Admonish people. Be faithful when people don't want to listen to you. And Paul at the end says, this is what I've done. This is what I've done. You're not doing it alone, Timothy. You are following after others who have done it before you because the gospel is worth enduring for. What Christ has done, the kingdom that we look forward to is worth it. And Timothy, I've done it. Now, Timothy, you go and do it. He's kept the faith. He is not asking Timothy to do anything that Paul has not already done. Paul is committed until the end. Why does he need to tell Timothy this? The very first word of this section tells us why. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. So that for ties us back to the previous paragraph, which we talked about last week. He says, preach the word, Timothy. So why is Paul telling him this. This is the grounds of his previous instruction. Timothy preached the word because I'm done. I've done my part and now it's on you. I have been faithful. I have preached the word. I have followed the prescribed course, but the end is near. Timothy, you've got a job to do. Timothy, be faithful. Timothy, you can do what I did. I've already shown that you can be faithful to the end. In a sense, Paul here in this text is passing the baton, saying, Timothy, this was my race, and I'm done with it. Here you go. Take the baton. It's your race now. He was committed to the end, but he also expected Timothy to continue on. He is not boasting here in this text. He's not saying, Timothy, look at how great a job I did. Think of all the churches that I planted. Think of all the people who I led to Christ. Think of all the books that I wrote. No, he's saying, I've finished it. You too can finish it. There is a path ahead. You don't know what it is. Be faithful. Endure because it's worth it. For Paul, his deathbed is a place of confidence, not a place of regret. It's a place of hopefulness, not a place of sorrow. In the last words of Paul, we see him looking forward to what is next. Verse 8, Henceforth, therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. So Paul says to Timothy, press on. I've pressed on. I've continued. I've preached the word. I've been faithful. And I've done so because I know that even now at the end of my life, it is merely the beginning of something else. There is something laid up 
for me, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. So Paul has suffered. He's been faithful. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been whipped. He's been shipwrecked. He's been in danger. Yet he gets to the end and he says, it's worth it because I know that after all of this, after all of this suffering, after all of this opposition, I can look forward to a crown. But then he doesn't stop with his own crown. He turns to Timothy. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Says Timothy, I'm dying. It's your job. I'm waiting for a crown, but you're waiting for a crown too. Suffer because we wait for his appearing. We wait for his return, and that makes everything worth it. Timothy, I've suffered, but I've endured because I know that it's worth it. So now you suffer but endure because you know that it's worth it. There's a crown coming, a crown that's incorruptible, a crown that's not going to pass away. Everything you work for in this world at best lasts until you die, at worst lasts less than that. But Timothy, this here, this crown, which will be given to you by the righteous judge, this is worth dying for. This is worth living for. This is worth enduring for. This is worth suffering for. And so Paul calls Timothy to follow after him in his commitment to faithfulness until the end. But not only is he committed to the end, he's also concerned for others at the end. He moves on to the next section dealing with those around him. Paul is concerned about other people, even at the end. Paul is probably the greatest theologian to ever live. He had a pretty significant benefit, what with the whole being inspired by the Holy Spirit bit. It made him a lot better writer. He didn't have to filter what he said through whether it was true or false. But certainly, no one has had a greater impact on the theology of the church than Paul. We know this because anyone who's ever been a theologian after Paul has been a theologian through Paul. Anyone who now does the hard work of theology does so looking at what Paul has written. Yet Paul was also a people person. It's unfortunate that a lot of times, and I know I deal with this myself and I struggle with this myself, we play against a passion for theology and a passion for people as if they're mutually exclusive. I don't really care about theology, I just care about people. Well, Paul cared about theology, Paul also cared about people. They were not exclusive to one another. It was his theology that drove him to care about people. The same guy that writes Romans chapter 9, where he's dealing with election and predestination and all these really hard topics that we sometimes sweep under the rug because they're hard to understand, the same guy that wrote that also wrote 1 Corinthians 13, where he's talking about using gifts with love. He is a theologian, but he is a people he studies God, but he knows that God cares about people, so he cares about people. And so we see how he works through these relationships even at the end of his life. He's steadfast even when people abandon him. Verse number 9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It's a particularly telling line when it comes right next to verse 8. So verse 8, he says, 
that the righteous judge will award a crown to him on that day, not only to him, but also to those who have loved his appearing, then just two verses later, Demas in love with this present world. So we have Demas is different than those who have loved his appearing. And Paul is abandoned, but he is steadfast. When Demas, his helper, we know very little about Demas. We have some references to him serving with Paul, Colossians 4.14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas, Philemon's 24. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So Paul has mentioned Demas as a co-laborer with him. And here's Paul suffering alone when he needs people the most. And where is Demas? And love with this present world has departed from Paul. Yet Paul is steadfast. He is faithful. He was not destroyed by the departure of Demas because his confidence was not in Demas who can leave. His confidence was in Christ who would never leave. So even as he suffered the pain of this broken relationship, he was faithful. Not only was he faithful, he still cared about relationships. You could imagine if you're Paul and Demas has abandoned you, would you then turn around and write a letter investing in someone else who might abandon you? In fact, you can kind of see when you get to this at the end, you might understand a little bit of why Paul would feel compelled to write to Timothy. Don't be a Demas, Timothy. Don't abandon the gospel. Don't abandon me because of my suffering. Don't abandon me because of the shame of suffering. And so, but at the same time, I know that when I get burnt in a relationship, oftentimes I deal with it by just not going into a new relationship, by turtling up, by protecting myself, by disengaging with the world around me because people are just going to hurt you eventually anyway. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul is abandoned by Demas, so he turns to Timothy and says, see what Demas loved? Don't love that. Demas loved this world. You love the next. And this whole letter is really completely in opposition to how he describes Demas living. He's full and still committed to relationships when he's abandoned. But immediately after he laments the fact that Demas has gone, let's continue reading in verse 10. Crescens has gone to Dalatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Skip ahead to verse 12. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. So these are all fellow laborers of Paul that he's listing off. And while he mourns the departure of Demas, he's actually actively sending Tychicus. And I think we can also conclude that Crescens and Titus, since they're not rebuked like Demas, are also serving in ministry. So Paul here, suffering, alone, lonely, and pain, is still sending out servants to the churches. He's still sending people saying, I would really, really like Tychicus here right now. I'm lonely. It's cold in the cell. I haven't had a visitor in a while. I wish Tychicus was here. But, you know, he's needed. I know that Ephesus really needs someone to come. Possibly Tychicus is the one who delivers the letter to Timothy. Timothy was likely in Ephesus. He says, Timothy needs this letter, so I'm going to send Tychicus. He's willing to make sacrifices. He's willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. He's willing to send those co-workers away because the ministry demands it. Not everyone who leaves Paul abandons him. Some are sent. He desires companionship in this world, but he will not sacrifice the next world for sake of such comfort. Because it all comes back to what he concluded with Timothy. I'm living for a crown of righteousness that's going to come. 
this world, though I care about this world. He does ask Timothy to come. He asks Timothy to bring his cloak because he's cold. He asks Timothy to bring his books. He wants those things to happen. Yet, as he suffers in this world, he is still enamored with the next world. He still lives for a crown so that he can send his co-laborers and ministry off to do the work of the gospel. We go back a little bit, verse number 11. We see he's also pursuing reconciliation with people. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So he wants Mark to come. Mark is John Mark. We know of John Mark from the book of Acts. On Paul's first missionary with Barnabas, Mark travels along with them. But at some point in the ministry, Mark pulls a Demas. Mark leaves Paul as Paul's ministering. He faces the persecution and he just doesn't stick it out. So when the first missionary journey ends, Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch and they're about ready to leave on another journey. And Acts 15 describes what happens. Acts 15 verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas, on their missionary journey, they're about to leave for a second time. Barnabas says, let's take Mark. Paul says, he left us once. I don't want to take him again. And it breaks up this ministry team of Paul and Barnabas. They go to two different places. Well, here we are some years later. And what does Paul say about Mark? He says, get Mark. Bring him with you. He is very useful to me for ministry. So Paul is not living in the past. He's been abandoned by Demas. But again, that doesn't cause him to bail on relationships. Imagine coming just after his writing about Demas, who did the same thing that Mark did years ago. He doesn't respond by saying, and Mark's probably going to do the same thing again. Timothy's probably going to do the same thing. No, he says, bring Mark. Bring Mark. He's useful to my ministry. He's willing to forgive. He's willing to pursue reconciliation. And he does all of this in spite of opposition. He's even at the last time when he is facing grave injustice, imprisoned for doing nothing wrong, in fact, imprisoned for doing what is right, Paul is nonetheless confident in God's justice. Verses 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So even in this person who has deeply wronged Paul, we don't know a lot about Alexander the coppersmith. The fact that he's described as a coppersmith means it's likely that he had some involvement with the production of idols. You can imagine someone who makes his living selling idols might not be a big fan of Paul. And Alexander the coppersmith, for whatever reason, has opposed and done great harm to Paul. But even in dealing with the opposition of Alexander, what does Paul say? He doesn't say, Timothy, start writing some blog posts about how bad Alexander the coppersmith is. Go on Yelp and give him a one-star review for making bad copper. I know. He says, God's going to take care of him. God's justice will be poured out on him. If there was anyone who had reason to doubt the justice of God, it would have to be the guy who was beaten, whipped, stoned, shipwrecked, and drowned. 
and imprisoned. That man is imprisoned for all those things, for, for doing what? For sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is anyone who should doubt the justice of God, it's the person who's led this difficult life because he was serving God. Yet, at the end of his life, he says, Alexander the coppersmith, God will take care of him. God will be just. He is confident in the justice of God, even in suffering. The final characteristic we see of Paul and how he deals with his relationships here is in verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So, Paul was abandoned by friends. Everyone deserted me. What's his response? Uh, may it not be charged against them. Now imagine how bad must Alexander the coppersmith have been <laughs> if just the verse before he's like, God's going to take care of him. And this verse he says, I hope it's not held against those who left me. Paul, at the end, is merciful. All of these things, though, all of these hard ways of living, both being willing to suffer, being merciful and loving and sacrificial in his relationships, all of those things stem from what he closes when he talks to Timothy above, where he says, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me. This was the path God gave for me. It involved suffering, it involved painful relationships, it involved persecution, involved beatings, involved prison, it involved me giving up everything for him. And I can do it because there's a crown of righteousness awaiting me. Timothy, you can do it too. You can enter into these difficult relationships. You can expose yourself to pain because you're confident in Christ. Paul's closing characteristic in 17 through 22 is that he is absolutely confident in the Lord. In spite of dealing with all of these things, in spite of being abandoned, in spite of suffering, says this, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Here's a man in prison declaring that he's been rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul has been able to do his ministry because his ministry mattered and God was at work through him. And so in God's work in Paul, he is able to accomplish all of these things because God had a purpose. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is able to endure because his confidence in the end. He closes with some more greetings. Greet Prisca, Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Remember, Timothy's supposed to bring a cloak. Eubulus sends his greetings to you, as do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So Paul, at the end, is confident in the Lord. He's faithful to the end. He cares for those relationships, even though they have caused him pain. And he's able to do all of that because he is confident in the Lord. So the question he leaves with Timothy, and by extension, the question he leaves with us, is how are we going to respond in this present evil world? How are we going to respond when suffering comes? Because it will come. How are we going to respond when relationships fracture? Because they will fracture. How will we respond when we are lonely? How will we respond when we are persecuted? How will we respond when our message is unpopular? How will we respond? 
The only way that we can respond in a godly fashion to suffering in this world is if we are more concerned about the next one than this. Brings me back in my mind to our last series in Ecclesiastes. It's the same concept as the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is vanity. So what are we going to do? We're going to live in the fear of God. We're going to live knowing that there is something that's not vanity, something that's not bubbles, something that's not vapor. We're going to suffer well because there's a crown waiting for us. And so Paul urges Timothy at the last of Paul's life, look to Christ. Look to God. He has given you much. He is sovereign. He is powerful. And in this present evil world, it does not always look at it. People will arise with itching ears. They're going to heap to themselves false teachers. There is going to be persecution from those without Christ. This is all going to happen. But Timothy, endure. Timothy, be faithful because there's a crown. There's a promise that has been given to you in Christ who has suffered before you. Christ suffered and was glorified. Paul suffered and was glorified. So now the call comes to us. When we face suffering, how can we endure? We can endure because we know that the Son of God came to earth. The Son of God endured temptation. The Son of God endured suffering. The Son of God was touched by our infirmities. The Son of God was crucified. The Son of God was buried. The Son of God rose again and ascended into heaven where he reigns at the right hand of the Father. And when we look to Paul, we can say Paul met that Son of God. Paul was confronted with that Son of God on the road to Damascus, and his entire life shifted. Because suddenly, after the road to Damascus, Paul is flat on his back looking at the resurrected Christ, and he says, this is something worth living for. And so Paul then suffers. Paul is beaten. Paul is whipped. Paul is stoned. Paul is shipwrecked. Paul is abandoned. Paul faces danger in rivers. He faces danger in the wilderness. He faces danger in the cities. He faces danger on the sea. Paul faces all those things. Why? Because on that road to Damascus, flat on his back, he looked up and he saw the risen Lord, said, that's someone who guarantees eternity instead of the next 60 years of my life. And so he suffered well. He endured suffering well. And now he turns to Timothy. Here's Jesus. That's what you're suffering for. Continue on. And in God's grace, that intimate letter to Timothy is recorded for us today. And we now can look to that Savior hanging on a tree, buried in a grave, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus. We can look to that Jesus and say, bring on the pain. Bring on the suffering. And I will not turn my back. I will not let go of my faith. I will guard the deposit that was given to me because Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered the governments of the world even though it doesn't look like it today. Jesus has conquered sickness. Jesus has conquered weakness. Jesus restores the most important and the most fractured relationship that ever was, the relationship between creator and a rebellious creation. And so I cling on to the gospel in faith and I endure suffering like Jesus did, like Paul did, like Timothy did. And so we look to our Savior. And as a means of remembering that, he has given to us the Lord's Supper. And so this week we are going to face suffering. Maybe not tremendous amounts of suffering, but here and there we're going to be reminded we're going to have 
physical pain. We're going to have relationship pain. We're going to suffer this week. And in God's providence, knowing that, knowing that when we suffer, we tend to think about the suffering and not our Lord, he gives us a memorial meal, which we partake of together this morning. In the next few minutes, we will hold in our hands bread, which represents Christ's body, a cup, which represents Christ's blood. We will partake of it. We will eat it. We will feel it between our teeth. We will know that Jesus, the Son of God, took on human form. He was broken. He was torn. He bled. He died. But he rose again. And together this morning, we will proclaim his death as we wait for him to come again. As we wait for that crown of righteousness that comes to those who are faithful, we are reminded by this meal of his sacrifice, which enables our endurance.